Hey, listener, Zach Harper here. Underdog Fantasy, the easiest place to play fantasy sports. Also, fastest growing fantasy app in the industry. Here's how it works. The Pick'em Game. Pick whether your favorite players will have a higher or lower stat total in this week's game for a chance to win big. How big, you ask? I'm so glad you asked that question, listener. You can win up to 100 times your money in a single night. Pick between two and five players. Build a pick'em entry. You can also do rivals picks. You can put like Tyrese Halliburton and Jalen Brunson against each other. And whoever has more points, more assists, more rebounds, whatever you want to do, that is your rivals pick. I would maybe go with Jalen Brunson in these playoffs. By the way, in the regular season, Jalen Brunson scoring tear, going higher on his point totals all the time. Joel Embiid, whenever he did actually play, higher on his scoring totals all the time. Victor Wembanyama for the next 15, 20 years. Here's a pro tip for you. Take higher on the blocks. That's right. So you're probably wondering, how do you sign up? Oh my God, listener, you are full of good questions today. Sign up with the promo code DING, that's D-I-N-G, to claim your special pick First time deposit offer up to $250 in bonus cash. $250, man, that's a lot. Visit underdogfantasy.com or find them in the app store. And don't forget to register with our code DING, D-I-N-G, to claim your special pick and first time deposit offer up to $250 in bonus cash. Must be 18 or older, 21 or older in Massachusetts, Arizona, 19 or older in Alabama and Nebraska, and present in a state where Underdog Fantasy operates. Terms apply. Concerned with your play? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.ncpgambling.org. Arizona, 1-800-NEXT-STEP. That's 1-800-639-8783. Or text next step. To five three three four two New York, call the twenty four seven Hope Line at one eight seven seven eight Hope and Y or text Hope and Y four six seven three six nine. Welcome back to another episode of Growing Up the Same. I'm your host Trevon Edwards. I'm joined by my co-host Jason Madison, and we have a special guest today brian koppelman how you doing brian i'm doing great thrilled to be here with you welcome to the show brian brian koppelman is an american showrunner he's the co-writer of oceans 13 and rounders the producer for films like the illusionist the lucky ones and the director for films like solitary man and the documentary this is what they want for espn as part of their 30 for 30 series and the co-creator, showrunner, and executive producer of Showtime's Billions. Brian, this is the one of the two. Ready? I'm ready. Go. Writer or director? Writer. Savant or genius? Refuse to answer. Poker or blackjack? Poker, which maybe makes me a genius. <laughs> Jay-Z or Biggie? Jay-Z. I'm a huge Jay-Z fan. LL Cool J or Rakim? Well, uh, so you have to understand, I grew up on Long Island, and uh, I'm 54 years old. So I know the first two LL albums by heart, and when Don't Call It a Comeback came out with the guys playing behind him on the live thing, it was a big moment in my life. But I can't argue with Rakim's flow. It's a very difficult question to ask at my age in the world. But I have to, I think for loyalty purposes, I have to go with LL. Nice. Led Zeppelin or Nirvana? Led Zeppelin. New York Dolls or The Smiths? New York Dolls. That's a great question. New York Dolls. But R.E.M. over either of those. Nice. And Velvet Underground over either of those. Beatles or Stones? Stones. CD or vinyl? 
Vinyl. DVD or Laserdisc? Oh, Laserdisc, because of the, all the additional material that they would put on Laserdiscs. I used to love Laserdiscs. Oh, I loved them. I don't have them anymore, and I don't really have much vinyl either, but yeah. Ed Norton or John Malkovich? We are talking about two guys I've been friends with and worked with for 30 years, 22 years. There's zero chance of answering that one. I love them both. <laughs> Ocean's 11 or 12? That's funny. 11. Uh, the Killing or Small Time Crooks? Oh, the, the Killing is just incredible. I mean, the, every version of The Killing is incredible. The Killing. Yeah. I was talking about Kubrick's original. Yeah. Kubrick's version is just insane. Uh Sterling Hayden is amazing in that movie. I mean, I, I, I watched it very recently. And uh, again, I've watched it so many times. That's a seminal, I mean, that's a seminal movie. Uh, Leaving Las Vegas or Misery? The, the book of Misery. Mississippi Grind or Cincinnati Kid? Mississippi Grind. Michael Douglas or Matt Damon? Again, I mean, there's just zero, I mean... I mean, literally, you're talking about people who I'm, I've, you know, and it's not because, listen, it's it, um, asking about movie stars is, is I, I understand the question, but, and it also sounds absurd to be like, these are my friends, but, you know, I've known Matt, Matt put me on the map, Dave and I, our first script was Rounders that Matt starred in, and Michael starred in a movie I wrote that we directed called Solitary Man, and um. They're both great. And they love, I'd say those two dudes love each other too. They did that Liberace movie together and, um, and they're great friends. They're both, uh, those two people are two of the kindest, most loyal people in the whole business, Matt and, and Michael. They really are. It's a, a, an honor to know both of them. I had the good fortune of meeting Matt Damon uh, last year and, and had a uh, real good conversation with him. He's a super cool guy. Yeah, he has the ability to be super down to earth despite the place in the world in which he lives, you know? Exactly. Uh, Wes Anderson or David Lynch? David Lynch changed my life because I um, practice transcendental meditation and I, I meditate every day, twice a day. But as a filmmaker, I prefer Wes Anderson. Oliver Stone or Mike Nichols? Uh, geniuses, both geniuses. Oliver Stone is a huge influence on on me. I think Oliver Stone, uh, his like personal behavior may be highly questionable, but Oliver Stone is an artist. Um, I don't think I do what I do necessarily without uh, Platoon, Wall Street, the script for Scarface, Midnight Express. I mean, I, as a as a dialogue writer, um, camera blocking or camera angle. Blocking. Brooklyn or Manhattan? Manhattan. Except I think I'm switching my allegiance to the Nets <laughs> after 50 years of fandom. Yeah. Penthouse or Beach House? In this environment, Beach House. <laughs> Axe or Rhodes? Come on. Next. Next <laughs> question. <laughs> Phil Hellmuth or Johnny Chan? Oh, great one. Um, I mean, I think you have to go with the rounders loyalty, but I'm much closer. I'm, 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 I mean, Phil's been in two things of mine, Tilt and Billions. Johnny helped put us on the map like Matt. I'm, I'm much 
I'm friends with Phil to some extent, or very friendly with Phil and Johnny. I don't know at all, but I think I got to go with Johnny. <laughs> all right. Uh, power or money? Power. Yeah. Free speech or free will? Free speech. Siskel or Ebert? Ebert. Knicks or Yankees? Knicks. Knicks for life. Knicks till I die. Misery, though. But it's horrible. It's a horrible thing to have to say. I'm trying really hard to switch to the... I'm really trying to switch to the Nets. Yeah. Uh, Steve Bannon or Stephen Miller? (laughs) That's awesome. Uh, well, I mean, Stephen Miller is not even worth. I mean, Stephen Miller is like the guy who opens the oven so the other guy can shove him in the oven, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I think they're both terrible, horrible. But Bannon is like an evil, sick, twisted genius, and Miller is just a toady. Yeah. Uh, Eddie Murphy or Richard Pryor? Eddie Murphy. George Carlin or Robin Williams? You're really good at this, Jason. <laughs> Thank you. You're great at this. Um, Robin. Kurt Vonnegut or J.D. Salinger? J.D. Salinger made me, like, partially who I am. So, I mean, Vonnegut, for today, right now, like, if you're listening to this, wondering who to dive into, go read Vonnegut, but for my life, over the course of my life, Salinger. TV or film? TV. The Departed or Wolf of Wall Street? Wolf. Would you rather ride by yourself or ride in a team? I love riding with David. Would you rather time travel or stop time? Oh, that's a brilliant question. Do you ask that one every time? No. I, th- most of these are always original, but depending on the guest. No, I can tell on all <laughs> the other ones. Yeah. Could be. Uh, um, time travel. Nice. Would you rather have a great-paying job that you love or a low-paying job that you hate? Or, sorry, the inverse. I mean, that's an easy, that's an easy answer. Great-paying job that I love. Or low-paying job that you love. That was my bad. <laughs> I view myself as someone who also is able to protect and provide, so I, I would suck it up, but I would keep trying to find the thing that I love. And I did, I mean, I, as you know, I turned my life inside out a bunch of times to find something that I love. Um, but uh, I do think that in our culture, if you can amass some resources, it's helpful. Yeah, agreed. Uh, Italian food or Chinese food? So I just want to sorry because people look to me for this exact thing you just asked. I will say, mm. I don't know that you can be, I am not somebody who's actually able to be successful at something I don't love. That's why I had to turn around. Like, I can't live those days. Yeah. But your question presupposes that you can't turn the thing you love into something high that that will be rewarding. I think in the real world, you can. I think right. in the real world, if you love it enough and give enough to it, you can make a founda- you know, foundation of your life maybe. So mm-hmm. that's the more complete answer. Right. Um, Italian food or Chinese food? Chinese. Uh, Lucali's or Roberta's? Roberta's. Nathan's or Sabret's? Nathan's. Robots or aliens? Aliens. And the last one, gambling or the stock market? Oh, gambling. 
please. It's like <laughs> saying gambling or gambling. <laughs> right. Uh, well, that was the one of the two. Thank you. That was great. That's excellent. Great work. So I don't have a fun segment like Jason does. Um, I always normally either dive really deep or we kind of pick up to the fun part, but it's not as just as fun as his, his part. Um, but we, we discussed three topics that you wanted to talk about um, in your childhood or just adolescence. Um, we'll start with... You should know that I do not remember what I said. Okay, so yeah, so it might... It might Whatever you ask me is going to be fine. Okay, so um, how does ADHD affect you? Or oh. well, at, during your childhood, for one, and then we can probably get to now. Oh, it affected me so much. First of all, when I was a kid, and I I love talking about this because someone out there listening has a relative or they themselves can't figure out why their performance is so uneven. Why when they love something, they're excited about it, they can perform at a high level. But if they don't, they actually do such a bad job that everyone around them thinks they're lazy or stupid. Um, and I was lucky enough that I had parents who told me I was smart. Though at times they thought lazy maybe. But they, they over and over told me that I was smart enough to be doing better if I applied myself. That said, school was incredibly painful. The things that... Um, the things that compelled me, I would, I could, I could do well at, I taught myself to speed read because I loved reading, you know, kids novels, kids books when I was like in fourth grade. And, um, before that I had no reason to care about it. So I had a huge vocabulary, but I didn't read. Then my mom gave me a book that I liked. I was like, Oh, this is great. And then I went crazy reading. But if someone gave me a history book to read, I was unable to do it. It would be like the book was toxic. Like, like it was almost like it was radioactive and it was pushing me away. Like the ions were just making it that I could not um, uh, approach the book. I would just sit there and listen to records all night long. And instead of doing my homework, knowing I should do my homework and I wouldn't be able to. And nobody understood um, ADHD then. There were no medicines really. You only got Ritalin if you were a, a incredibly hyperactive. I, I was a disruption sometimes in class for being a wise ass. But I wasn't bouncing off the walls in that way. I was just, I, I could, boredom killed me. I, anything that was boring, I just couldn't do it. And yeah, and it made me a disciplinary problem because I'd be sitting in class reading a book I wanted to read. If the teacher wasn't keeping my attention, I would, be, I would start entertaining the whole class. And um, so I got a lot of detentions. I had a lot of problems in school. I constantly felt this huge gap between what I felt like my potential might be and what my achievements were. And that gap can really crush you. Uh, and, um, and it tortured me you know, to look at my friends who, who, who I could keep up with in conversation. Uh, I could read 10 books to their two books and talk about them if it was something I was interested in. But I couldn't do what seemed simple to them seemed impossible to me. And it would manifest in other ways too, you know, like I, I was um, an athlete, I played sports, I, I, I was a varsity, at two varsity sports, and, but like inevitably there would be some issue with the coach or um, I would be distracted, you know, I'd be in playing tennis and I would get distracted by something. And so learning how to manage that, recognizing it, also nobody told me what it was, so I was just walking around thinking um, for some reason I'm a failure, you know, I, um, I, I can't get good grades. 
I was always able to do outside stuff. So I was like producing records when I was a kid and I was um, uh, uh, promoting concerts. And I, 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 I was able to like get myself into a good college because I was able to write a good essay and, and do some stuff. But every second of it was torture and college too. college. I succeeded at all sorts of outside stuff, but, but I had a bad GPA and I was even at college. It still kind of haunted me. It wasn't until I was much older and started going to therapy that I realized what was going on. I read some books about it and realized, okay, well, I hit 30 out of 30 of these questions when they ask you the question, you know, the, the, the questionnaire. And so I realized, all right, well, I got to figure out how do people manage this? You know, what do people do to deal with it? And so I've gone on Adderall, uh, Vyvanse, all that stuff. I'm not taking any of it now because for me, uh, I was able to, once I was on that stuff, for the most part, I was able to afterwards sort of mimic the behaviors of it, largely. Um, I'm not against that stuff. I would take Adderall if I felt I was going into a period where I needed it to do a lot of hard work over an extended period of time, I might take it. But I haven't taken it in probably two years. Um, I go in, like, I'll go two years not taking it, uh, six months taking it to kind of remind myself. Um, but uh, it, 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 it made me the ADHD and the sort of reaction from schools really did make me wonder whether I'd able, part of me knew I'd be able to be successful because I saw in certain ways I could um, achieve things. But another part of me was constantly haunted by, well, what if you are lazy? What if you can't do it? What if you'll always not finish things? And what, what if you'll always be somebody who just comes up short? And so that really haunted me for a, um, a long time. And I'll say, I always say this, I just, you know, I, I love the premise of the podcast and, and I, I had huge advantages. You know, I've thought about this a lot, like a kid who wasn't raised the way I was with privilege. My dad had some money. I knew college would be paid for. I knew, uh, I knew how to talk to people in power so that when they were going to throw me out, because I watched my father do it. So when they were going to throw me out of somewhere, I knew how to charm them. I knew how to relate to them. Uh, as a man, I knew how to talk about sports with people, which is a very powerful thing to be able to do. Uh, as a white man uh, and a white kid, even, I was able to make my misbehavior just look sort of charming, like Ferris Bueller. Um, and so there are all these ways that I, I think I... Um, I was resourceful, so I have to give myself some credit, but I also know that the situation was built, as painful as it was for me, it was built with some kind of a floor that I couldn't um, crash below. And that, I, I was hugely advantaged. Two parents, enough money, um, private schools when I needed to be in a private school, and a lot of second chances that a lot of people don't get. And and that, all that stuff happened to me. And, you know, they would try to find a tutor who could help me. Even though they got, the, they got it wrong, like no tutor knew what was going on, there were like constant attempts to, to remedy what was happening. So I had, as painful as it was, it was still, I'm aware, so much better than it is for many people. There were so many opportunities where somebody else would have just fallen through the cracks, been labeled a behavioral problem. I mean, I was, they wanted to throw me out a bunch, but they labeled it in a way that was permanent, that would have gone on their record and would have, um, screwed them up. And, and that was just never in the cards for me. Thank you for sharing that. All right. Our next topic would be, uh, how has suicide of a close friend of yours affected you mentally and in your life? 
Yeah, when I was 12, uh, one of my very closest friends killed himself, which is the kind of thing, thing that um, we had known each other from the age of four. We both had the same first name. When you're four, that's a big bonding thing. And um, we spent a ton of time together from ages four to like 11. He got a little more distant in the last year before his death, but we were still super close. Um, I wasn't at his house as much. Uh, we used to be at each other's houses constantly. And uh, I think the year that he died, maybe we were slightly less at each other's houses, though in constant communication and at school together. But it made me aware almost instantly, I will say I changed like that. Um, almost instantly, I started holding those close to me closer. You know, I reacted. I guess you can react in a couple ways. One is like, well, fuck it. I'm never making close. I'm never making, I'm never putting myself at risk again um, of having a close relationship. But I clicked into a gear where like, if you were my friend now, I had to know that you were okay. And I had to be there to try, you know, as much out of neurosis as out of having a good heart or whatever. But, but it taught me like the fact that suddenly he was gone. The permanence of that at 12 is a really heavy thing. You know, I don't know if either of you have lived through uh, losing someone young, but when you do, it does shift your belief system in some way. Uh, the permanence of it, the vacuum that's there, the self-recrimination, uh, you know, wondering what you could have done. You go through all these stages. But it, 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 his death and a couple of other deaths along the way reaffirmed to me, like, the thing we talked about earlier of, being fully engaged in stuff. Life is fucking short, as much of a cliche as that is. And hold the people dear to you dear. Check in with them. I'm big on that. I'm big on checking in. I'm big on making sure you're okay. I'm big on, um, if I'm in a car, I try to think, who could I call who I haven't reached out to in a while? And and as you get older now, you know, in, in my 50s, I've lost in the last three years, like three real friends. And people who would be those recipient of those phone calls from the car. And, and, and I'm really walking around aware now that this thing is fast and the only meaning is the meaning you give it. And that meaning often comes from your relationships with those that you love, your friends and your family and work that you love uh, and, and being engaged in stuff that you love. And, and I think I started thinking about all that stuff when Brian died when we were in seventh grade. Yeah, I can uh, I can relate a little bit as far as but the thing was, is that the association of it is kind of similar to like how you no one had an answer for you for ADHD um, growing up in Compton. Normally, people that needed someone to talk to or anything like that, therapy was kind of frowned upon. So sure. those those individuals were normally lost. And then especially me growing up in a heavy gang community it was just kind of like they were kind of castaways, you know, in that scenario. And, you know, obviously myself experiencing death with my father early on and then not having um, my mother around and just seeing people death all the time, I became desensitized to it. You know what I mean? And like now at 35, I feel the same way you feel as far as like how important relationships mean in that aspect, but it was a big empty time for roughly almost 15 years where 
it's just kind of I'm getting phone calls. I'm getting, you know, this person took their life or this person died. And it just became, you know, if I'm getting a certain phone call after 9 p.m., I already knew what it was, you know, and that it, and it's unfair for that. But like funerals, it's to a point. I think our last guest we had on um, was talking about the struggling of like just being able to cry. Like I haven't cried in roughly a decade. So I envy the people that are able to do that. But like your awareness early on to have that, I wish I could have had sooner, you know, um, just to kind of appreciate a person's life a little bit more versus like the product of an environment situation because it was like, well, I hate the term the game's the game, but that's kind of how it felt, you know, like, well, that's how it, that's how life is. And I didn't like that because now it just makes it seem like this is just how it's supposed to go. And you think that some people are supposed to live forever. Like we're getting these now, these, uh, these news death alerts about people dying and have an old age. And you're like, well, they lived a full life. And those people in your head, you're like, oh, okay, you don't picture that you're getting older as well. You know, yes. and then also with the younger people, it's just kind of like, you know, I got in a car accident. I could have lost my life three weeks ago. And I, I, I think about that. So my approach, my mental approach every day has been different. You know what I mean? Whether I'm getting off the phone telling somebody I love them or whatever, I'm still working on the feel part. I don't have the feel. And I think that's that's the thing that I daily struggle with sometimes just because I want to feel and I don't know how to. So do you um, do ther- do you do some kind of therapy now? I do, I do, I do, and then I also host a uh, a trauma group, you know, where I'm talking to other individuals to help them cope with the situation. So um, it's been very, be- it's been very helpful. But uh, man, thank you so much for sharing that because I, I related to that so much. I didn't uh, cry for a long time either, uh, and uh, now the move I can cry at movies. And do you meditate? Uh, I do. I actually, uh, it was uh, Wilson Chandler from the Brooklyn Next actually introduced me during when quarantine. I had a lot of time to sit with myself and he was just like, yo, I got this yogi. So it was like yoga plus meditation. And right. it's been super helpful. But since I broke my that leg, helps lock in mm-hmm. even transcendental meditation, which is what I do, which I'll, I'm happy to hook you up. Yeah, with, please, uh, please, please share. Um, I'm definitely interested in that. Catching the Big Fish by David Lynch. Um, and it's, it's Lynch's book about how meditation helped him, the particular kind. And check that book out. The audiobook is the best. Okay. His voice is so strange. The audiobook is amazing. Catching the Big Fish by David Lynch. And if you dig it, let me know and I'll, I can help sort you out and get, get taught. Cause I, meditation helps to get in touch with that part of yourself that you've you had to lock off when you were a kid because otherwise you'd be crying and screaming. You wouldn't just be crying. Yeah. You'd be screaming, wailing and having to turn yourself inside out every five minutes because of, of the environment in which you were raised and, yeah. and or at which you were not raised. You know, you were growing, you had to raise yourself at mm-hmm. a certain point. And, um, so from, but for me, like movies would make, even life wouldn't make me cry, but movies would. And then I found a way to like tap back in so that I can be affected in, in life. But, I understand that desire to be able to cry. I once almost wrote a movie about someone. Maybe I still am gonna. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I was gonna say go for it because I would like that. I, I like to find I movies that I'm relatable to. First scene, they can't cry. I had a whole thing I wrote about it that they can't cry. 
Um, and it bothers them that they can't cry. They're shut down for this reason. And, and um, they were like a war doctor in my in my the, the thing I had written about. But it's a real thing. I get it. It's a real thing. And see, I'm I'm kind of the opposite. And I have actually like a story that's relatable to both of you guys. So like the first tattoo I got was at the beginning of this year is, uh, is for my cousin who was murdered, Alex. Alex. I'm Lewis. sorry. And um, basically, when I was 20, I was in college. Uh, you know, he was trying to be a blood and, you know, he, he got murdered in front of uh, a, a Ralph's, you know what I'm saying, in Inglewood. And and it was just it's still hard for me to to deal with. You know what I'm saying? But it motivated me in such a way, you know, like basically my cousin is a rapper. We were working on music. I was producing music for him. And it's actually kind of what turned me into a director, producer and all that, because I was basically like, I had a realization of how precious my life was. Like my cousin was the same age as me, you know what I'm saying? And to see him gone, it was just like, I couldn't believe it. You know what I'm saying? It was There was just no talking to him. Like you knew he was doing, living that life. Yeah. And, and yeah. And it was couldn't. like, those, yeah, it was like one of those things where, you know, you're 19, 20 years old, everybody, I'm in college, he's off doing that. You know, you, you kind of had that little fork in the road towards it, high school. And like, you know, I basically took all that energy and put it into my other cousin. Like, yo, you have to make it as a rapper. We have to make it, you know, doing whatever we're doing because life is like you said, life is short. We don't know what's going to happen. And it's, you know, and so whenever I talk about it, still, I get choked up. I still have a lot of emotions behind it because I am one of those people who cries a lot and I'm able to cry a lot. You That's know? better, though. That's yeah. better. <laughs> Don't yeah. you think? Yeah. It's better. Trey, it's better. Right? Yeah. Nah, better. like I said, I, I envy those people for sure. I mean, definitely. You know, and people are like, why? Why would you want to? And I'm just like, it's just certain situations because you come off so cold or um not dark in that scenario because you you actually try to feel something but you just can't you know and i think it's it's the most awkward thing yeah it's the most awkward thing ever when you know someone's telling you or sharing bad news with you and you're just kind of like well it's kind of like taking a picture and not knowing to do with your hands you know that that that's that's pretty much what it is for me um my 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 next question on a transition on uh, to tell us about your junior year and making the big decision of playing varsity ball or directing a play. Well, yeah. So it was a good fork in the road kind of a thing. Um, as you were just saying, fork in the road. Um, I was really interested in both things, you know, growing up, there was nothing for most of my early life. Nothing was more important to me than basketball. I wasn't great at basketball, but I, uh, I was a really good, like eight year old basketball player. And then when everyone got physically better, it became harder, you know, like I just wasn't a gifted athlete in that way, but I was like, I loved it. I, you know, the Knicks were the most important thing in the world to me. I played basketball every single day. All I did, it came from school. I just played basketball, you know? Uh, and I, in 11 in 10th grade, I didn't make varsity. I made JV coach and I did not get along. But in 11th grade, I made the varsity, which is a big deal. And um, I knew I wouldn't play a lot, but I made the team, which really mattered to me. And I really wanted the jacket and I really wanted to be in the layup line. I mean, you know, I just wanted to be in that layup line. And, and, and uh, um, 
but right then I got offered every year in our school, there was a musical put on by the junior class and the faculty picked one kid who got to direct the, the show and I got picked to direct the show, but you couldn't play ball if you directed the show. And if you would have asked me six months, like all, oh, I, I never thought I'd do this for my life. I never thought I'd be somebody making, telling stories and making stuff. I mean, that all didn't happen for me for 10 more years. But when I looked at it, I remember talking to the coach who I really liked. And, and he said, there is no guarantee. I said to him, if I go do the play, can I play varsity senior year? And he's like, well, I can't guarantee it because, as you, you know, the whole point of someone making a team on an 11th grade is that they understand what it's like to be on varsity. They get in my system and then maybe they can play senior year. Bringing on a senior who's not one of the best players, it doesn't really do me anything the coach was saying to me, like, I'd much rather pull up a 10th or 11th grader and let them be on varsity so that by the time they're seniors, they can contribute, you know? So, but I thought about it a lot. And I guess something in me must've known that, that, that the opportunity to direct a play, a musical and, and be a part of that would give me something more, would connect me, you know, that, that, that was an opportunity to talk to actors, uh, to meaning, to have to talk to an actor about their performance, even though I'm sure it did it at, at, at you know 15 or 16 years old. I wasn't probably great at it, but just getting the reps in of, of putting on a show and talking to actors and staging, blocking them on stage, you know, um, learning. It, it, it turned out to be the better decision. And then senior year, and so I got to do the play, which was really um, a great thing. And it was great that I followed my instinct. I mean, nobody was telling me to do the play except the drama guy. Um, and nobody expected that I would do that because even though I had done all the plays, like I was in all the plays and assistant direct, all that shit, but everybody thought like I, my identity was so tied to basketball in every way in, amongst my friend group and amongst like my family, you know, and, um, but I just had to do it. And then I remember senior year going to tryouts and the coach was great. He pulled me aside. This guy, he, he'd been a great college player actually famous when he, he's much older than me but famous when he was in college but he pulled me aside and he said here's the thing you, you can make the team like but you're gonna be like you're good enough to make the team i can't i can't cut you on merit but you have to know you're really not gonna play like you're gonna be the 11th or 12th man i want you in the he goes i want you on the bus because like you're gonna keep people loose you're a good teammate you're fun to have around but you gotta no, you can't sulk because you're really not going to play. Like, you're just not going to play very much. So decide. And then I did it. I played senior year. And I'm so, I'm so glad that I played senior year, you know. And, I, I mean, I was the kid. The whole gym was screaming. They put me in when there were four minutes left and all that shit. And as soon as I would touch the ball, I would fucking launch it so my name would get in the newspaper. Like, I was the ridiculous. But, but you know, it was like um, getting to do both things, to direct that play and then actually getting to play um, – on the varsity meant something to me as a, as a kid. And it's something that I'll, I always have, you know, that I did that. Man. Yeah. That's a, that's a good experience. Now the listeners will know that, you know, Brian Koppelman played varsity basketball. That's higher than some of the people that, that troll people on Twitter. So, so well, you, like I said, I was, but I also admitted I was the 11th man on the team. I mean, I didn't, <laughs> I, I got in games, but not when anything was on the line. Yeah. I mean, no, it's, it it's all good. I man. actually got much better in, I got much better at basketball. My body caught up. I became much better like my junior year of college, not good enough to play college ball, but like I played every single day in college and then suddenly like, oh, this game really made sense to me, but it was mm -hmm. fucking too late. 
it was just too late yeah i mean it, it normally clicks like that the more and more you play your your iq expands and you know you 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 work you work smarter than harder so you know you see the game a yeah. little bit different just learning how to yeah learning how to run the like really learning where to you know all that shit that they try to tell you mm-hmm. it's hard when you're i don't you know that aspect of it, especially if you're not very physically gifted you know really knowing how to fill the lanes really understanding how to pick up your dribble and drive like all that stuff mm-hmm. easier than me when i got older <laughs> what's your favorite childhood memory Favorite childhood memory. Yeah. Um, oh, it's so corny, but it is true. And it's a thing I took parenting-wise. Do either of you guys have kids? No kids. Not yet. I had one big rule uh, that I made as a parent, because my dad had it, which was whenever – my son in this case, but it could have been either of them. Whenever um, my son wanted to have a baseball catch, I would always say Yes. And I was like, that was just my, like, I thought if you just always say yes to a baseball catch, it means you're always going to say yes to lots of stuff. But also there's something about throwing a baseball with your dad that is a very important thing. And my dad and I, he pitched in the Coast Guard and he's 80 now, but he and I, he would come home from work, he'd be tired, whatever. And if I was like threw him the baseball glove or threw him a basketball, it didn't matter. He was a good shooter at hoops, but but having like long baseball catches and just with my dad and just either talking or being silent, that would be about as good as it got for me growing up. Did you sneak that in billions? Uh, I don't know if we put the rule in there. Um, I gave, I told a friend of mine about it recently. Because I saw uh, that and I was just like, hmm. But maybe I did. Did yeah. I put it in the show? I don't yeah, they were I just making it. a pitch. Like, you know, just kind of just tossing the ball. But I just was like. Oh tr- sure, yeah, but I don't think I said the thing where you got to. No, 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 no. You didn't. Ha- you didn't have it in there. But like now, it just kind of struck to me. Like, oh, okay. Oh yeah, that's we are. David and I always put tons of stuff from our lives in the show. Nah, that's cool. All right. Uh, my last question, and then Jason has a few. Um, what's been the happiest you've been in your professional career? Billions. This now. Um, not right now, obviously during COVID, but. Um, you know, global pandemic's not a great time for anybody, and we're not shooting the show now. But getting to work with that group of actors, you know, with my lifelong best friend who I create with, um, and having people react to the show the way they do. You know, we get to make exactly the show we want. We put exactly what we want in the show. We don't hold back ever at all. And people who love the show are fanatics. And so it's just an amazing thing. And I, my wife's happy and healthy and my kids are happy and healthy. And that's like, you know, for me, the most important thing. And so overall, this is a very, this has been a very sort of sweet spot. Uh, uh, going on the uh, well, I should say one thing, which was at 49, I, it is important for your listeners because yeah. at 49 around, I had an incredible low point. We had a movie called Runner Runner that came out and bombed. We uh, were going to run a TV show and got fired. And our agent basically told us we were not employable. We were unemployable. So I was 49. I had done this for like 19 or 20 years and suddenly was told that it was unclear if I would have any professional possibilities. And I remember talking to my wife about maybe selling our apartment so that, you know, we could make sure we could pay for college and and all that stuff. And, um, And out of that, Dave and I wrote the pilot for billions and with Andrew and we wrote the pilot for billions and 
changed our lives. And so I was at a real low point of 49 and now I'm 54. And I can tell you the last five years have been far and away the best professionally. You know, I'm, unless I really screw it up, I'm never gonna have to sell my apartment. And I figured the whole, you know, I, I was able to sort of like get myself to a place professionally that, um, that I'd always wanted to get to. And that late in life, you know, a lot of people think 35, 40, 45, it's too late. But I literally was 49 and told, give it up and um, didn't give it up and, and, and was able then to literally, you know, put, put myself, Dave and I were put ourselves in a whole new category. So are Bobby Axelrod or Chuck Rhodes based on any real life people? They're not, they're comp, they're comp, Positive characters, really. You know, we we interview a lot of people. We went to a lot of hedge funds, spoke to a lot of managers of hedge funds, spoke to a lot of lawyers, thought about it, read a lot, and that's where they came from. People guess, and I don't mind people guessing. I like it, but they're not based on real people. Um, what gave you the confidence to write a character like Asia Kate's Asia Kate Dillon's Taylor Mason into a script on a show like Billions that you know deals with so many other heteronormative topics and, you know, including a non-binary person into that dynamic? One of, uh, both of my kids came home from, one was at college, one was at high school. Within like two weeks of each other, they mm -hmm. told me a story of um, other kids telling their pronouns. And I'd never heard of it. Being an older, you know, being yeah. like older person, I was like, what do you mean they're telling their pronouns? And then I got the lecture from both of them. But let me explain. This is what it is. So hearing about that was, I brought it to the writer's room and I said, People are now saying their pronouns, and here's why. And there are some people who don't identify as either gender. And then another writer in the writer's room said he had just met somebody like that. Um, and we started researching it, and we realized, oh, there's a way to make this character remind acts of, of himself, but on the externally, they could be an entirely different kind of person. So you watching the show would have no idea that this is the person who might be Axe's protege. And, and so then we interviewed non-binary people, read a lot about, like we did the work to do it correctly. And then we were lucky that we cast Asia Kate Dillon, you know? Yeah, they are great in the role. And it's an amazing thing to see them in that performance for the world, you know? And I enjoy it as somebody who, you know, enjoys everybody and like, I. I work in like production, post-production, whatever. And I like worked on Pose when they first started. And I was like, this is cool. Like there's finally all the representation that everybody's been talking about is finally emerging in media. And I, I love to see it. Yes, it's been that part of it. I don't think Dave and I were sure, neither was Asia, how people would react. But like every day you see evidence of how that character has had a positive influence and it's awesome. I mean, to think that a show like ours would have something in it that's that um, nutrient rich for the world is really great. Yeah. Um, how did you and Eddie Murphy strike up a friendship? Friendship overstates it, but I mean, I love him. We're not friends. So if I think if I saw him and I told him who I was, he would be cool. I haven't seen him in 30 years. Um, I was managing uh, when I, like I said, when I was a kid, I would, I, I did a lot of stuff outside of school. And one of those things was I was managing a folk singer and he played at a club. And this is when Eddie was a featured player the first year he was on the show. And he, I got this kid a gig opening for Eddie and, and the kid got, he was a white Jewish folk singer and he got booed off the stage. No fault of his. The audience was there to see Eddie Murphy. It was a Long Island audience that was there to see Eddie, his people from, you know, cause he grew up there. So it was like, just nobody had any time for this kid. 
but I hung around and watched Eddie and, and it was like nothing I'd ever seen in my life. It was the single best, you know, two hours of comedy and he just pulled, it was just insane. So I snuck backstage and introduced myself to him and his manager. And I was like, uh, you should be making records. And my father was in that business and I, was, I, I connected them and got the album to happen. And so like my dad made those albums with Eddie, the, um, Eddie Murphy comedian and, and um, he party, you know, my girl wants to party all the time, all that shit. So I was just around him and he was super sweet to me as a, as a kid, I guess I'm four years younger or something like that. And he was just super nice to me the whole time. He was, um, uh, and, and he and my dad, as people do, had a business falling out and, uh, or really his manager, my dad did, but there was a big business falling out and I hadn't seen or heard from Eddie in a long time. And I was standing in LA five years later, maybe he was Eddie Murphy by this point, as big a star as you could be. And he, I was standing in this line and I saw there was Eddie walking with a group of people. And I was with, I think, one friend and I think maybe a girl. And I saw him and I was like, ah, uh, Eddie, hey, Brian Compliment. And he just fucking breezed past me it was, and, and just like coldly, just barely acknowledged the move. And then a minute later, he tapped me on the shoulder. And he's like, hey, man, I couldn't just, I couldn't just walk past. And he gave me a hug and it was super sweet and like, great and it was awesome he's like yeah whatever with your pop has nothing to do with you and whatever it was great yeah. and um uh that's like the last i think i saw him one other time and um i i'm so uh, you know it meant a lot to me when i was a kid yeah what's your feeling on film school and its necessity to become as successful as a filmmaker or somebody who just works in the industry I mean, Quentin Tarantino didn't go and PTA left, right? So, and they might be the two, you know, two of the very best people. I think it's all individual stuff. You know, I'm, I'm, I've always been fairly skeptical about which parts can be taught. That said, knowing how to light, knowing how to edit, knowing the basics, if you can afford the time, if you can afford the money and the time in your life to go do that, I think there's very little negative. If you have an idea for a movie, I mean, look, Spike Lee, obviously made we cut heads at, 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 and, and began writing she's got to have it so like if you can if you can take the time it's worth taking the time um i never did it i there were times standing on the set of my first movie i really wished i had now it doesn't matter you know now all these years later like i've i've learned but uh, it wouldn't have been bad to go in knowing what um what lens different lenses look like right all right, my last yeah. question that we ask every guest on the show is, what advice would you give 18-year-old Brian? Don't worry so much about the people who don't understand who you are, what your intentions are, and what your dreams are. Uh, there are always going to be people scared of people with big dreams. Always going to be people threatened by people who see the world differently. Uh, and know that do your own work every day write something every single day and don't let the haters win thank you so much brian for joining us this has been another episode of growing up the same